Welcome to Soccer 101, the podcast where we scratch your soccer itches and apply a smooth balm to your burning soccer questions. Mm, that intro was much more gross when read out loud, but I'm going to move on with the topic of the day for this one, the big one, the World Cup. Yes, the United States men's national team are officially qualified for the 2022 edition of the Big Jamboree in Qatar, along with 28 other teams and a few places still to be decided. But what is the World Cup? Why do we have it? Why is it such a big deal? And what does its future hold? My name's Ryan Bailey and three other hosts have qualified to enter this episode, starting with, hello, Taylor Rockwell. Hello, Ryan Bailey. That is a phenomenal introduction, my friend. Well worked. Well worked. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I was a bit too gross off the top. Now I've read it out loud. It looks <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's page. kind of your brand, right? Like I, when I think Ryan Bailey, I think gross <laughs> off the top, but then grows on you over time. That's, his, that's what this is on my business card, actually. You're quite right. You're quite right. Uh, Joe Lowry's also here. How are you, Joe? Good. I'm applying that balm as we speak. And is it balmy for you in sunny Scotland, Graham Rutherford? No, it's literally snowing today, Brian Bailey, in Scotland. I'm not even kidding. That is not a joke. It is snowing today. By the way, I like that for listeners, these are meant to be evergreen episodes. And really, it could be March. It could be June. It could still be snowing in Scotland. So it does kind of keep the vibe overall. Yeah, it's, nothing is evergreen. It, yeah, it, just evergreen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's the snow falling in Scotland. Graham's feeling a bit ill. That's evergreen enough for us, I think, for this episode. Um, I'm Ryan Bailey, by the way. I qualified as host for this um, uh, uh, podcast just to keep that theme going. More on qualification for World Cup shortly. Why don't we get straight into the meat of this thing, guys? What actually is the World Cup? Let's come at this um, as, as, as novices or for novice soccer fans, if you will. So the 2018 World Cup final. Uh, back in 2018, in the summer, one and 1.1 billion people watched that game. Uh, it's probably the biggest sporting spectacle in the world besides the Olympics. We can probably agree on that. But Taylor, what is it about the World Cup? Why is it so loved? Yeah, I think it's because it's it's just a global party in my mind, and I think that is what the original founding members of FIFA sort of envisioned when they came up with the World Cup. Because at the time. The Olympics are very dominant, but the Olympics are emphasizing amateurism. And so I think FIFA had this idea that we could have a tournament that could include the kind of burgeoning uh, professional ranks, but it could be this thing where we have different teams from around the world with different uh, cultures, different playing styles coming together, and it brings the people of the world together, but you also get this clash of style on the pitch, and then off the pitch, it's more so a combination of humanity. And so those two things come together to make it this really entertaining spectacle of events, and you mix in some nationalism as well, because for those who are unaware, uh, club soccer, Manchester United, Atlanta United, uh, those are... Uh, teams that are composed of players from all over the place, whereas when you get to international soccer in the World Cup, you have teams that are composed of people from that country or people who've been naturalized or recruited when they were 16. But whatever, the point is they're playing for their country and it's country versus country with a lot of fans enjoying the atmosphere. Yeah, that's a good point to make, Taylor Stage, particularly when we're coming at it from 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 a beginner soccer fan, a beginner soccer fan, if you will, mm-hmm. because um, quite often I've been asked by people like, "Why are Liverpool in the Champions League? Is that not the Premier League? What is this other yeah. cup they're in? And can they play in the World Cup and so on?" So it's good to clarify that that the World Cup is the premier competition for international teams, teams made up uh, of of players all from the same nation or with connections to that nation. Um, Joe, can we get into the 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 construction of the World Cup? Who qualifies? From where do these teams come? Absolutely. So in this 
current stage, meaning the last handful of World Cups and, and at least this one coming up in 2022, there's a little time capsule for you, listener, if you're listening in the future. Way back in 2022, woo, 32 teams qualify from all around the world. The host qualifies automatically. So for 2022, that's Qatar. For 2018, it was Russia. You can go back every four years since then and find all the different hosts. UEFA gets the most spots in terms of teams qualifying from different continents and different confederations. So that's UEFA Europe gets the most spots. Then CAF, which is Africa, gets the next most. Then CONMEBOL, which is South America, and AFC, which is Asia. Then CONCACAF, which is North and Central America. Then OFC, which is Oceania. They all have different amounts of spots. Even some confederations like Oceania get half a spot, meaning that if you win your your region's qualifying tournament, you still have to go and play a team from another region to actually decide who gets to go to the World Cup. But even qualifying is a real roller coaster ride in a lot of senses, especially as someone who spends so much time thinking and talking about the U.S. men's national team. But qualifying is also dramatic and exciting, and there's a lot that goes into this process in every different region. They have different qualifying processes, but ultimately they all get them to the same place, and that's to the World Cup. Indeed. And Graham, there is some controversy about the manner in which the places are allocated to the six confederations, isn't there? Because uh, I think we've said on previous podcasts that it seems like CAF, the African uh, Confederation, gets a bit of short shrift. Is it five teams they have going through, which is around 10% of their total confederation, uh, a much higher percentage for other confederations? That's right. So UEFA, as Joe mentioned there, they get the, the most spots with, with 13. You could argue that is due to a, a depth of quality in UEFA. They are probably the, the, the confederation with the, the highest quality of, of teams throughout that confederation. However, there is some discrepancy. I think we can all agree that Africa is underrepresented. underrepresented. Thankfully, when the, the World Cup is expanded for 2026, which I think we'll talk about a little bit more later on in the pod. Uh, Africa is going to receive four more places, so CAF will have nine places in total for 2026, which feels slightly more like it, but when you consider the the tournament is being expanded to 48 teams for 2026, it still feels like they could maybe squeeze a couple more places out of <laughs> out of the tournament, but uh, yeah, it's all going to get shaken up for 2026 when they expand that tournament. Indeed. And as for 2022, there are some big teams missing out. Mo Salah is not going to the World Cup, for example. Qualification in CAF uh, uh, finishing up uh, this past week as we record. Italy also not making it this time around for their second consecutive World Cup, which is quite insane given that they are European champions. They won Euro 2020 last summer. T-Rock, Big T. The draw, as we record, is coming up. Many may have seen the draw by the time they listen to this episode, but... How is that constructed? How do we get these teams who have qualified into the groups at the World Cup? Yeah, so once we've got all of our teams that have qualified, theoretically, that's how it goes. Normally, when we're doing a World Cup draw, we know all the teams that will be there. You've got them all sorted into their various pots. This time around, it's a little bit different because of COVID. Games got pushed back, schedules got delayed, and then on top of that, there's obviously the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Ukraine were supposed to play Scotland uh, this week to see who would advance to play, we now know, Wales, and then the winner of that would go. So there's still some up in the air about who will end up qualifying, but overall, you end up getting your, for this uh, 2022 World Cup, your 32 teams separated into four different pots. That top pot, the top eight teams are the top seven teams in the world, according to the FIFA 
world rankings. And then the host nation always automatically qualifies in the first position. So that would be Qatar. Uh, and then I think historically you tend to get a pot that is sort of European heavy because I think they do oftentimes try to balance the number of European teams in a group. Um, you'll, and then you get kind of the weaker teams as you go through to pots three and pots four. Uh, there's a draw to get all of the top eight teams into one group. And then they go through for pot two and they put all those teams into a group and you slowly fill up the groups and you end up getting one group that inevitably is not as tricky and one group that is oftentimes very tricky. And we call that, when it's a tricky one, Taylor, a group of death, do we not? Yep. We do. And we'll be, I suppose we're hoping to see one in this draw. We may have seen one already, as we say, listener, you may know the results of it. But um, you hope for the States and maybe England not to be in the group of death. Yeah, that'd be fine. Although we did, I think in the end, maybe this can't happen. But I think we were speculating yesterday that there's a chance that we could get England, the USA, and Scotland in a group, potentially, if Scotland were to make it all the way there. And that would be pretty fun, I have to say. There'll be a lot of tension on this broadcast. Oh, you think? (laughs) I think I have a feeling that maybe three of the co-hosts would uh, riot against one co-host in particular. (laughs) <laughs> oh come on we'd, we'd be nice to joe don't don't, yeah. don't paint it like that taylor come on come on uh speaking of joe we're going to talk about the history of the world cup very shortly it goes back many many decades but before we get to the history of the men's world cup we should acknowledge that fifa mm-hmm. organizes a women's world cup also and that's um that's uh, uh, yeah. not what we're necessarily addressing today joe yeah, so that can be a whole separate one-on-one, and I think it should be. We'll tackle yeah. that down the road. The Women's World Cup was first played in 1991. It already, for for not having been around nearly as long as the Men's World Cup, it's 61 years less of history there. It was poorly phrased by me, but you get the idea. Still has a lot of history and depth to it as a tournament. I really enjoy watching the Women's World Cup just as I enjoy watching the Men's World Cup. It's growing quickly. Um, the number of teams and number of games is expanding just as women's soccer in general is improving. We're recording this the day after there was a packed Camp Nou between Barcelona and Real Madrid and their women's teams. Just an unreal progression for women's soccer. It's great to see. And so we're going to talk more about the Women's World Cup down the road. We will do indeed. Good shout, Joe. Uh, Okay, so we know what the World Cup is. We know how it's constructed. We know how teams get there. So let's go a little bit back in time. Uh, For the benefit of everyone listening who hasn't seen the 100% accurate FIFA documentary United (laughs) Passions, which does outline this with complete accuracy, as they say, and not dramatise in any way whatsoever. Let's clear up the history. Uh, Graham, first tournament was held in 1930 in Uruguay. Uh, 13 teams were there. Mm -hmm. I was today years old when I learned it was the US his best ever finish they finished third in uruguay in 1930 there are only three european teams who traveled to that one a long way by boat romania france and belgium yeah and i also learned that many of the european nations who were invited by uh, by fifa so that is something another thing we should reference is that all these nations were actually invited there was no qualification process for the first ever world cup and um, a lot of the european nations uh, refused those invites because of travel costs to uruguay and south america where this tournament was hosted so there was no england scotland northern ireland and wales and i referenced those four nations in particular because they were kind of the the founding fathers of international soccer if you will the first ever international fixture between england and Scotland. None of those home nations were at this tournament just because uh, they couldn't get the megabus to South America and they decided <laughs> they didn't want to uh, ship over or fly over. So slightly slightly strange tournament, that, that first one in Uruguay. 
Indeed, yeah. So the competition has evolved both in size and in, in structure uh, in many ways, Taylor, since then. And if we're going to look at the popularity of the World Cup, there's probably two things we can attribute to its growth. That's probably globalization in, in itself and the rise of TV broadcasts. Yeah, absolutely. Because when you're relying on newspaper accounts a couple days or a day after the the games happened, that doesn't really build the drama so much. You've got radio broadcasts early on, but in 1954, we get our first televised broadcast. In 1970, that expands to broadcasting in color. And from there, you're able to watch every single game, every single moment of every game. And nowadays we have the ESPN tactics cam where you get sort of uh, a specific angle of the pitch. If you want to watch just for tactics, you can get the coaches cam. If you want to watch Yogi Lowe be disgusting uh, TV has Blech. really helped the spread <laughs> of the game. It's also, I think changed the way it's get the way the game is played. We've talked about this before, but Initially, as I said, it's meant to be this sort of you've got teams in remote parts of the world or in relative isolation. If you're in an Eastern Bloc country, for example, your football evolves within the country. Not a, not a lot of people are able to observe it or see what's happening. And so you have this very unique style when you end up playing at the World Cup. And it can spring a huge surprise if you're suddenly playing an innovative or brand new formation that no one's ever seen. It can really be tricky. Uh, the Dutch exemplifying that with their, their pressing system that totally threw people off uh, in the 70s. But then as you get more and more television coverage, it's easier to just see these teams. We see them more often. We become more familiar. And I think it makes those big differences between teams a lot smaller. And it becomes much more about the nuance and the training and the preparation, less so about the major system that no one's ever seen before. Mm. And in, in modern terms, sorry to, to jump in there, in modern terms, we're talking about how the World Cup has been uh, broadcast and, and shown and communicated around the world. I think the 2014 World Cup was another big moment because apparently people refer to that at the World Cup as the social media World Cup. I learned that in a, mm. in some sort of marketing uh, seminar that I watched. I felt very grubby after watching that seminar. But anyway, um, obviously we've got used to soccer being views, viewed through the prism of Twitter and Facebook, etc. But 2014, it kind of sent the sport on its way to its current position where that is very much the norm. And, and I actually was, I was working at an official rights uh, holder for the 2014 World Cup. So I have some firsthand experience of how that tournament was very much about getting clips out onto social media as quickly mm. as possible. And that was the first tournament I can really remember. Maybe a little bit Euro 2012 as well, but the, the 2014 World Cup really ramped all that stuff up. That's a very good point, Graham. Maybe James Rodriguez having a giant locust land on him during a game in 2014. We still don't uh, know what that bug was. We still don't know, but we know it was all over social media, that's for sure. Um, and actually, yeah, uh, I was lucky enough to be at the 2014 World Cup in Brazil, uh, working for um, a broadcaster there as well. And I had my first viral tweet um, from a stadium in Rio. We can maybe what talk was about it? that later. What was it? Tell us, tell us. It was, <laughs> was the video of you falling over? That came years later, Graham. Thank you for bringing that up once again on broadcast. Um, it, it was a South American journalist in the mixed zone who was dressed as if oh, she were to yes. attend the beach rather than a press conference. Right, Roger. And you were wearing the same. And I was like, I can't believe we both picked the same wardrobe yeah. for this day. I like exactly that. I like that this was originally phrased as like Ryan wrote a very clever tweet that went viral and caught storm, and now it's like, oh, you posted a photo of a scantily clad yeah. person. The, okay, the shame in his voice again. just grew as that sentence yeah. <laughs> progressed. It, it's the kind of tweet that feels less and less good in 2022 than it did in 2014. Let's quickly move on from that. Taylor. Yeah, cut that, cut um, that, cut that. 
<laughs> yeah, let's get let's get some editing scissors around that, perhaps. But um, the World yeah. Cup has a, a long and storied history uh, on the field and off the field as well. Mm. Uh, there's some controversy around Qatar being uh, a host, and uh, much controversy about the nature and w- uh, the way in which they won rights to this World Cup and potential accusations of corruption behind it. Um, you know, talk of Qatar not being a, a soccer nation per se, which I'm not sure that's entirely relevant, but. There is a history of things and politics off the field affecting um, World Cups, is there not? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say up front, uh, this is, you know, coming from an American. We hosted the 94 World Cup when we had no domestic soccer league or no major domestic soccer league in existence. So I don't have nearly as much of an issue with the, like, they're not a soccer nation sort of argument. I think that's what the World Cup is supposed to do. It's supposed to spread the game to connect people, as I said. I I firmly believe that. Where Mm -hmm. I have an issue is that, to me, 2018, 2022 – Heavily influenced by money and illegal money, a.k.a. bribery. Uh, what is it, like nine of the ten people on the bid committee have been indicted or are serving sentences or have been accused of crimes, embezzlement, whatever you might have. So I think there's a lot of uh, just frustration with the obviousness with which the corruption was applied to these bids. It's a really strange thing for me in 2022 that... Initially, when Qatar wins it, it's supposed to still be in the summer. They're going to have all this technological innovation to allow that to occur. I'm taking us off on a tangent here for a moment because I'm not sure we've discussed this. But it's really strange that then they end up having to move it to the winter because they, they're not going to build climate-controlled stadiums with underground access. And it's odd that now that seems to have been almost beneficial because with COVID, everything's been pushed back. We've had these delays. We have delays in qualifying. And in some ways, it's given everybody a little bit more freedom, a bit more leeway, so we don't have to play four games in one qualifying window. Uh, But with that said, yes, if you look back at the history of the World Cup, it is not always the longest, proudest history because, as we've seen, politics and sport tend to get blended together. There's a really good article uh, in Esquire uh, about it written by Will Hershey. He was writing about Argentina in 1978. But his opening line or one of his opening lines was, if sports and politics shouldn't mix, no one ever told FIFA. And I think that is very much true. Hmm. Uh, Italy hosting in 1934 would be a great example of that. It's the second World Cup. Mussolini has been in charge for 12 years. Political opponents removed. Uh, They were unlikely to win the bid because of his political interference. Sweden was the rival. Then there's rumors of payments, of intimidation. Italy ends up getting it, and Mussolini obviously uses it for propaganda. He instructs radio commentators, for example, to always discuss the crowds as being pro-Italy and massive, even though infrastructure uh, limitations meant that stadiums were often half full. Lots of speculation about corruption in relation to the officiating and the way the games played out. Italy ultimately winning with some maybe maybe favorable refereeing decisions, especially in the other semifinal when Czechoslovakia eliminates a strong Germany team due to multiple questionable calls. But we go from there to the 70s specifically. The Soviet Union refuses to play a playoff against Chile in a stadium where uh, dictator Augusto Pinochet had been executing left-wing prisoners. 1978. The military junta in Argentina is in power. The uh, disappearing of quote-unquote state enemies is very common. They're referred to as the disappeared. And there's just so many, like, not even borderline, just horrific stories from this time period. Uh, Here's a good anecdote for you. Argentina in their opening game, they're playing in a group with Hungary, Italy, and France. Uh, In their game against Hungary, they go 1-0 down. They fight back, literally, sort of, to get the win, 2-1. 
Forward Leopoldo Luque scores the equalizer. After the victory, one Junta official remarked to Luque that, quote, this could turn out to be the group of death for you. Or excuse me, this could turn out to be the group of death as far as you are concerned. That line was delivered with a smile. Here is Luque talking about it later on. Quote, uppermost in my mind was that earlier that day, the brother of a close friend of mine had disappeared. His body was later found by villagers on the banks of the river plate with concrete attached to his legs. At that time, opponents of the regime were sometimes thrown out of airplanes into the sea. And there are plenty of allegations about the brutality of the dictatorship, but how the World Cup was used to sort of cover that up and make everybody think things were wonderful. It's estimated that 30,000 people were killed by that regime. There's allegations of Argentine players using amphetamines, more or less openly, having to do two-hour cooldowns to have the amphetamines wear off. There's the one allegation that an Argentine player tested positive for being pregnant, which I don't think makes a ton of sense. So a ton of speculation about the oddness of that World Cup. And I say oddness because it's the thing that Ryan, they talk about in that United Passions movie as like, do you remember the weirdness and how they gloss over it as sort of like, yes, there are questions, but it's about the beauty of the game. And that's what we must focus on. And I think that's what FIFA and the Argentine dictatorship wanted us to believe. But in reality, I think a lot of people knew what was happening and chose to look the other way because that's also the first time that FIFA is allowed to establish its own marketing and its own branding and they control their own sponsorships. And I think that was part of the condition for them giving the World Cup to Argentina. And that is when FIFA starts to brand everything, to have corporate sponsorships and to make so, so much money off the World Cup. Yeah, they have very, very deep cash reserves to this day, Taylor. Um, I think the TLDR is... Well, I mean, they're is... a non-profit, so you've got to have billions of dollars in reserve. We all know that. That's how non-profits work. Well, you're supposed work. to make amazing movies like United Passions if you don't have cash <laughs> reserves, Taylor. That's the, uh, that's the real oh, issue Roth. here. Yeah, <laughs> indeed, Roth. indeed, indeed. Um, so, yeah, the TLDR here, Taylor, is that if you are feeling uncomfortable about Qatar, then there's a long history in which one may feel uncomfortable about the World Cup. Even going back to yeah. the last one, Russia in 2018, um, which was played not long, a matter of years after they um, annexed uh, Crimea. And, you know, they had the Winter Olympics around that time as well, which with passing years yeah. seems less and less satisfying, does it not, Taylor? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's it's... Wild to think about that at the time, it was a sort of just like, this seems like a bad idea. There's the, there's the infamous in my mind, Fox segment about like, say what you want about Stalin. It's just like, I'll say he's a murderous dictator who killed 20 million people. Can I say that? (laughs) Like, you guys aren't going to. Um, but even reading about that one, Ryan, today, uh, as I was researching, I did not realize that we have, all of the concerns, justifiably so, about uh, the the death rate of workers uh, building the stadium for Qatar. Worth noting uh, uh, that Russia in 2018, many of the stadiums uh, used forced North Korean labor to for their construction. So it, it is, and this has been the case for many World Cups going back many years. And that's not to excuse it. That's not to say, so don't feel bad. Have no conscience when it comes to Qatar. I think what I kind of take issue with is the idea that this is so horrible that it's Qatar. Qatar is doing this. And I do think a lot of it connects to, well, they're not a soccer nation, so they've just bought their way in. And maybe that's true, but it is also the case that historically the World Cup has been used for political purposes. It's been used to cover up injustices and outright horrors in society. And I and I think we risk, like hiding ourselves from the actual past of it by saying, no, it's always been great. And this great 
cultural assembly until now, and the past two have been bad. There's sort of always been uh, major blips as we go back, even in the 80s when Columbia is supposed to host in 1986. But there's internal strife with, with FARC and M19. There's the drug war with the Medellin cartel, and that's why they lose it. There's a crumbling infrastructure. There's a crumbling economy. I think exports are down or... Uh, coffee exports. One export in particular was very up in Colombia in the oh, yeah? 80s, but uh, maybe the less said about that, the better, but that's why it gets moved to Mexico. And so we, we have times when political infighting or, or war or terrorism or drug wars influence where these tournaments are going to be hosted, how they're going to be played. And again, to reiterate, Soviet Union refusing to play a game in a stadium where there were public executions, like that that shouldn't have been a decision they had to make. That shouldn't have ever been a thing that was allowed, but I'm guessing FIFA were able to, you know, sell some sponsorship money, so it's fine. Indeed. Troubled history of World Cup tick. Thank you very much, Taylor <laughs> Rockwell. We're going to take a yeah, very uplifting. quick pause. Yeah, very uplifting. I was going to slightly tonally change the gears hmm. there by m- noting that when you said Qatar enthusiastically, it sounded like a pirate. You went, Qatar! Yay! <laughs> very good. Um, and I just said that out loud. We're taking a quick break. We'll be back very shortly. We're going to talk about our favorite moments from the World Cup and what its future holds. Back soon. Today's episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN, who would like to remind you that if you're not using a VPN to check out what Netflix, for example, has on offer, you are missing out. A quick perusal of the movie and television offerings on the various Netflix services in many different countries shockingly reveals that the United States is falling behind, folks. We are falling behind when it comes to the availability of television and movies. I doubt that's true. But the United Kingdom has like 500 more movies than we do available on Netflix. Latvia has like 300 more movies than the U.S. Ireland is way up there as well. Plenty of countries with lots of different movies and TV series for you to check out. But you have to be in that country unless you're using a VPN. And with ExpressVPN, you can gain access to all of those different libraries Uh, The UK one, I think, has every single episode of Doctor Who, for example. But you don't experience that loss in quality. It still comes through crystal clear, and it's very easy to use. Our own Graham Ruffin used a VPN to watch the USA-Mexico game, the Mexico-USA game, I should say. Uh, He found it really easy to use. The quality was good, and so far, so good, which is about the highest level of praise I think Graham is capable of offering. And with ExpressVPN, you're getting blazing fast speeds, you're getting compatibility with all your devices, be it phone, laptop, media console, smart TV, and more, servers in 94 different countries, and it works with other streaming services like BBC iPlayer, YouTube, and many more. Get you some match of the day in there. So be smart, stop paying full price for streaming services, and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com slash soccer. Don't forget to use our link at expressvpn.com slash soccer to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Thank you to ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's show and being a well-run company, unlike the clubs we are now about to talk about again. Welcome back to Soccer 101. We are talking all about the World Cup and its storied history. Joe! Let's uh, talk about our favourite moments, the most memorable moments of the World Cup. Um, As the youngest of the crew, um, I'd be interested in your perspective on the standout moments of the tournament for you. Sure. So, yeah, I have a a much smaller base with which to draw from than the three of you. But I'm going to go through a few favourite moments of mine from the last couple of World Cups. 
The first one that I will, I don't think I will ever forget is Robin Van Persie's header, diving header oh, against Spain for yeah. the Netherlands. I was in Spain at the time, not at the game, or obviously the, the game wasn't in Spain, but you got the idea. Not even at any sort of watch party. I was more of a casual soccer fan at that particular time. But the Netherlands are down 1-0 to Spain in the first half of this game, and it's a floated ball in from out wide deep, like just around the halfway line. Van Persie's making a run in behind. He sees the ball coming in over the top in the air. He jumps, plants his feet, jumps, and manages to head it over Iker Casillas. And that ties it 1-1, close to halftime. And then the Netherlands go on to win 5-1, right? It's a ridiculous game from them. They score a bunch of goals against a very good Spain team, although not the same Spain team that had been dominant in Europe and, and really all over the world from 2008 to 2012. But that goal, the technical precision, and just the rarity of a goal like that. I, I can't imagine there have been very many goals scored from that deep in the box with your head in a situation like that in possession. So a, an incredible goal. You could hear the the people all around us in different apartments and whatnot yelling at that moment. Spanish fans just can't – they couldn't believe their eyes in that moment. So that's definitely one for me. The John Brooks headed winner over Ghana and his stunned celebration in 2014 in that group stage, mm-hmm. it really is a celebration for me more than anything because – of just how shocked he looks. At first, looks like instinct takes over and he knows what to do to celebrate. And then realization sets in of what he just did and where he's celebrating this goal and in what context. And he just looks so incredibly stunned. And that was a huge result for the U.S. as well that got them or or played a major part in getting them out of the group in 2014. And then my other one, guys, this is from 2018. It's uh, it's Mishi Bashuai shooting the ball in (laughs) celebration um, after after Adnan Yanuzai scored for Belgium. And the ball, instead of just going into the back of the net, you've seen players do that before. They, They dropped the ball and they punted into the back of the net. Uh, Batshuayi hit the post and it ricochets back and hits him squarely in the face, which for any player would be funny for Batshuayi <laughs> and his personality, at least what he exudes on social media. It's this really fun loving kind of easygoing guy. He then poked fun at himself afterwards and talked about how bad it hurt. But it, I mean, it was it was funny, guys. It was really funny. Didn't it he? Was. I think he posted a photo of him hugging the post <laughs> yeah. and being like, like friends forever or something. <laughs> so good. So, yeah, Ryan, those are some of my favorite moments. There's others like Belgium. Had a really beautiful counterattacking goal against Japan in 2018 that, that there was like the tactical cam footage that Taylor's talking about floating around on Twitter for a while. That goal won them the game against Japan, which is kind of a bummer as far as upsets go. But it was a ridiculous goal. It starts with Courtois, De Bruyne drives forward, Lukaku dummies it in the box. Just really exceptional team goals. Definitely one of my favorites in World Cups. There's there's tons of these, but I want to hear what you guys have to say as well. Those are some great selections, Joe. I love the fact that of nearly a century of passion, of glory, of tears, of sweat, <laughs> of victories, of tragic losses. Are you writing the United Passions your- doc? Good gracious. <laughs> Yeah, I'm reading off the script. Well, one of your favorite things is a guy kicking a ball into his own face. I like no that. doubt. That's, uh, no up doubt on the list. There. Big fan <laughs> of that, Joe. Big fan. Um, Graham, I one of my favorite moments of or one of my favorite tournaments, I should say, is one I think I probably share with you is France '98. When I was 14 yeah. years old, I was this was my, I would call this my coming of age World Cup where I watched every game. USA '94. I can only really remember watching the final, if I'm honest. Um, but this one was yeah, where I watched every game. I had a real vested interest because my team, here we go, my team Wimbledon had three players in this tournament. We had uh, Neil Sullivan in goal for Scotland, oh, yeah. which is wonderful to have an Englishman in goal for Scotland. I enjoyed that. Um, and Marcus Gale and Mr. Robbie L, who were both playing for Jamaica. Robbie L scoring Jamaica's first ever goal at a World Cup final. It was against Croatia. And I can remember almost being tearful how proud I was that a he, that he, my favourite player and a Wimbledon player, had done that on the world stage. And this had one of my favourite 
evenings watching soccer of all time, like sitting there in my home, in my lounge with my family, England-Argentina in the round of 16, which was famously a 2-2 draw that went to penalties, which um, Argentina triumphed in. But this was the game where David Beckham was sent off uh, for kicking, kicking out Diego Simeone. He became like a villain at every stadium in England thereafter, eventually moved to uh, Real Madrid to escape that. Um, you know that that was an incredible that Michael Owen's goal as well in that game as well was was a really incredible solo uh, effort from him. Uh, that tournament as well, Graham Scotland finishing bottom of their group without a win. I really enjoyed that as well. So just a really really good tournament for me. That memories. Yeah, I mean, I literally have in my notes this is one of my best ever soccer memories as a '98 World Cup. So uh, yeah, it's pr- pretty much my first vivid memory of a of a soccer match is yeah. that opening match between Brazil the the reigning world champions and Scotland yeah. and I'll just never forget the feeling of this this is going to sound really weird but of everyone watching it does that make any sense at all of it being everywhere of it being at school being on everyone's TV yeah. everyone's talking about it it's on the adverts there's cereal with the uh, footballers like figure figurines inside and I'll never forget the, the 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 crushing disappointment of Tom Tom Boyd's own goal in that game against Brazil because it was one all for a long time in that game and then an own goal it felt like the perfect introduction to being a Scottish football fan unfortunately <laughs> but I still remember it fondly because it's it's the it's my the first World Cup that I can ever really remember properly. Your note there, Graham, about everyone watching is quite important because one of the great things about the World Cup is in general the world stops to watch it like in England certainly from my experience when there's a World Cup game on nothing else is happening in the country the the streets are empty Uh, I remember 2002 World Cup um, which was in uh, Korea and Japan Um, my school because the kickoff for the Brazil England Brazil game where Ronaldinho did that very famous lob um, over would it have been David Seaman at that time I think it would have been David Seaman yeah yeah Um, they showed that in my school hall on a big screen so that Same. no one would miss it. It was 8 a.m. kickoff. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, did that in my school as well. Because they wouldn't have reasonably happy. expected anyone to be doing any work or schoolwork at that point, which is quite, quite a big thing. Any other big moments for you, Graham? Um, so 2006, I watched the World Cup final in France, and I'll mm-hmm. always remember the, the audible gasp when the replay of Zidane's headbutt was shown. Because initially it wasn't quite clear what had happened. Everyone's glued to the the big outdoor screen that they were showing and it, everyone sees obviously the, the red card and no one really knows what he's done and then there's the replay of it and I'll I'll never forget the the gasp that that goes round at that that crowd because that was it was a bit of a Will Smith at the Oscars moment Dude. like that how that was completely <laughs> unprecedented that had never happened before and people were confused as to why it happened but um what what I also remember about that was even though France lose that game and maybe Zidane is partly to blame for that because I remember France were kind of on top in that in that game when that happened. I can't remember any France fan being angry with Zidane because obviously he had such a standing in that country and what he'd done in previous tournaments but in particular the the, the France 98 tournament where he'd taken that that so-called rainbow team to the to the final and then produced that incredible performance in the final. So it, it kind of felt like uh He'd given his dues, even if maybe he'd cost his team that game. But as I say, that gasp will be with me forever. Wow. Taylor, most favorite, most favoritist. Yeah. Best memorable moment, moments of the World Cup view. I wish I could speak today. I apologize. I'm just, I'm reeling from Graham having the same note because we're recording this the week after the Oscars slap. And that, it really does resonate as that same level of like, wait, what happened? How did this happen? What's going, <laughs> what did he say? There's still like debate about what was said and why it happened. And it's just such an, 
infamous moment in World Cup history. It also uh, moves Zidane into another vaulted category of being, I think, one of only two players alongside Rigobert Song to get two two red cards at a, at different World Cups. Rigobert Song is now managing Cameroon, who will be at the next World Cup. Maybe he can make it three. We'll see how his levels of uh, descent can be. Uh, but I would say other big moments for me, one of my favorite goals ever, I've talked about it many times, the Bergkamp goal against Argentina in 1998. I too love the 98 World Cup, but that goal where he brings it down with oh one touch, God. megs a player with another, volleys it with a third into the like the top corner, the Dutch commentator screaming the whole time, if you can find that clip, you should. Uh, that's an amazing moment. From a U.S. perspective, I agree with Joe about that John Brooks header against Ghana. Also, obviously, the USA's 3-2 win over Portugal in 2002, when they go up 3-0, they hold on for the 3-2 win. But I just remember all my friends thinking, like, oh, we're going to get rolled. I thought the same thing. And I came downstairs, I think, like 15 minutes into the game, and my dad was like, they just scored again. I don't know what's happening. So that was that's just like a, a great moment of the reminder of the potential of the World Cup. But I also enjoy that the World Cup brings... Reasons to dislike people for the rest of your life. So, for example, I will never, ever forgive Torsten Frings for the handball on the line that could have meant a penalty for the United States, an equalizer in the, what, quarterfinals? That could have been a big moment. I hate you, Torsten Frings. I also dislike Leonardo since 1994 for the deliberate elbow to Tab Ramos that fractured his skull. So... You have enduring moments. You have these these great moments for a country you care about, a player you love, in Ryan's case, uh, for bringing you together collectively, but then also for disliking a person for very personal reasons for a very long time. Oh, on that note, Taylor, that reminds me of another Uh-oh. very memorable World Cup incident, which I was only two years old for in 1986, the aforementioned tournament in Mexico. Quarterfinals, England-Argentina. Um, the phrase, Two legal goals, man. God. What a hero. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a game in which Diego Maradona um, displayed his trickiness and his genius. Uh, the hand of God moment, of course, is when five foot five Diego Maradona magically outjumped six foot goalkeeper Peter Shorten with his arms fully stretched uh, to no question from any of the officials uh, and managed to push the ball into the goal with his hand. Minutes later, he scored the goal of the century, one of the greatest goals of all time as well. So quite a game from him, quite a performance from him. And there's, once again, when we talk about politics and sport, there is there was a political undercurrent of this game. Four years previously, um, the UK and Argentina were at war over the Falkland Islands. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, you know, there is a backdrop here. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of animosity between these two nations, which may have fueled uh, comments that both English media and Diego Maradona said after this game as well. But that's one of the more famous incidents, um, which I was not around for, unfortunately. Wasn't also around when, oh, England, they've won this tournament. Any of your nations won this thing, by the way. 1966, we won it. Oh, okay, yeah. get over It's kind of it. a long time ago, Ryan. Doesn't that yeah, expire it's, it's, after it's, like 50 it's years? It's a real long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> when they change the trophy, you don't get to brag about it anymore. Yeah, Brazil has that Especially trophy. when you lose the trophy. They do. So that's another thing we should point out in this episode, Joe. Good note. Um, the Jules Rimet Trophy, which England won, um, when, a t- when a nation wins the trophy three times, they get to keep it, and Brazil are in ownership of that trophy. Um, and I, I'll, I'll link that from 1966 to 2018 as well, being one of my favourite World Cups, not just for recency bias, but bias, excuse me, but England going to a semi-final for the second time in my life. It happened in 1990 as well, but I wasn't quite 
uh, into the game as much as I am these days then. Uh, a very fortuitous route for England in 2018, you might remember. Um, but still being very England by managing to blow it all and blow a place in the final by going out against a reasonably average Croatia side who got destroyed by France in the final. Um, so, yeah, there you go. That's I think that's just about a good summary of some of the big moments and some of the moments that have meant a lot to us, gentlemen. Shall we finish off this podcast by looking ahead to the future. And we've mentioned it, Taylor, earlier, but the 2026 World Cup is going to be hosted closer to home. That it is. It will be the first World Cup that is ever hosted. Uh, I I don't know what it would be like. The tri-host? There's got to be a fancy term for it. But yes, USA, Mexico, Canada hosting the 2026 World Cup. The uh, expanded 2026 World Cup. 48 teams will end up qualifying for that one. Um, We... I, as far as I know, we don't actually know if all three host countries will be automatically awarded uh, spots. We assume they will because that's been the way it's been in the past. But I'm not sure if that's been made official or if there will, be, will end up being some form of qualifying. Though you would assume the expanded format means even if all three go, you still have three places left over. So I think that's probably what we'll end up getting. But we will get uh, a number of confederations with sizably expanded contingents and then we'll get a playoff on top of that which should make for some some interesting drama uh, in the lead up to the world cup as well i'm unbelievably excited about world cup coming to north america in 2026 taylor but i have reservations about the expansion to 48 mm-hmm. teams um there there's traditionally always been at least one big nation that misses out and we could say it's italy this time around in this cycle italy aren't going to have any trouble qualifying for a 48 um, nation tournament well, are they? Are we'll they see. Take we'll see. Some- they could find well, a way. Let's not speak too soon, I suppose. But my point being, the peril that qualification represents is going to be less of an issue for the big boys coming up for the next cycle. Yeah, I think that's totally true. And and I think there's there's a world in which that is a bad thing. Uh, there's a world in which that's a good thing because, like, talking about Egypt and Senegal this week and Mosulah not being there, that feels very harsh because uh, African qualifying is just so tricky and so ruthless you can win your group but then you got to win that playoff and you don't know who you're going to get and if you're Egypt you could get Senegal and then you run into some problems that lest we forget that is the the two teams that contested the most recent African Cup of Nations and it feels unfair that you don't have both of those teams but simultaneously you're right Ryan having some of those bigger name countries in the past we've had Italy uh, the Netherlands Chile not make it and I think Chile not making it this time and I think there is that, just that feeling of like ooh there's an exclusivity there's a feeling that we're getting this elite competition uh and <laughs> I was going to say elite competition that also features New Zealand but uh for the most part an elite competition and so the expanded format on the one hand removes some of that removes some of the drama of qualifying but I, I'm also just curious because it's going to be a new format. It's going to be three team groups. It's going to be a, just a different structure. And I think there will be much more drama in the tournament itself. And we'll get new teams, which will ideally expand the appeal of football around the planet and ideally get more people playing. And then you strengthen those nations and then it becomes a stronger competition just in time for it to expand to, I don't know, 54 teams every <laughs> two years or something like that. One of my one of my concerns over the expansion is actually to do with the hosting of it. So 2026 is a, is a bit of an exception in that regard because I actually think the Canada USA Mexico dynamic will will probably work quite well. But when you see some of the the bids for 2030, um, so one of the best things about the World, the World Cup for me is getting a real cultural sense of the the host country. And when you have like four 
three or yeah. four different nations hosting it. And 2020, uh, 2030, sorry, I should say, we've got bids from Spain, Portugal, which, okay, that's just two nations. But then there is a Bulgaria, Romania, Greece, and Serbia co-host bid. And then a South America, Argentina, Chile, Paraguay, and Uruguay bid as well. I, I compare it to Euro 20, uh, 2020, which was hosted across a number of different nations in Europe. And I, I, I just felt like you didn't get that cultural sense of a, of a single country or a single place. So mm. I don't want to lose that from the World Cup. Um, I can imagine, I've never been to a World Cup personally, but I can imagine going as a fan, you would get an even greater sense of, of those places. And if we, if we lose that as part of the expansion, I think that will be a loss. Well, Graham, 2026, I think it's a good chance we could all be there. As, as fans or, or, or as TSS representatives. Joe, by the way, um, in 2022, there is a scenario where the US play a group game on Thanksgiving. If those timings work out, how crazy would that be? Murica, baby. I don't think you can line that up any better, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, we have to hope that the FIFA gods make that one work out and maybe they fudge the groups and the dates a little oh, bit no. to make it work out because surely they would want that, wouldn't they, Taylor? They want that, I, right? I need that. I kind of need that to not happen, not just because it means I'm missing Thanksgiving, but also because all that it will be on American sports coverage is, like, Thanksgiving is about football and the Detroit Lions being terrible at it. How dare they take away from that game? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't look forward to that conversation so much. But I do look oh. forward to, uh, you know, just maybe getting to hang out with some family and watch a World Cup game and have it be just an exciting time. The World Cup is always so exciting. I'm so happy the USA is there. I'm happy for you that England is there. Graham, I hope that Scotland makes it through, uh, even if that feels slightly weird to say, given your opponent. Yeah, I also have those conflicted thoughts yep. <laughs> where, yes, I very much want to beat Ukraine into smithereens, but also be very sorry for doing so. Um, you know what? I think w- there have been many jokes about how Scotland should just give up their spot. I think I think we can all just agree England should give up their spot. Ukraine should take England's yes. spot. We all good with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Mm-hmm. Joe, you good on that? I could go either way. Yeah, it's fine. All right, so Joe's Joe uh, abstains. Graham and I vote yay. Ryan, I'm assuming you're voting yay as well. Uh, my connection dropped for a minute there, but I'm just going to carry on. Um, <laughs> I've got some good news for you, Graham. Um, the The timings of the World Cup group games are very suitable for European viewing. The first one's at 10 a.m. It goes like 10, 1, 3, and like goes goes like that. Um, that means uh, for the East Coast, 5 a.m. Yeah. start for the group games. Joe, oh my. 2 a.m., baby. I actually might cry right now. I won't. I won't. (laughs) But I might. Well, maybe Arizona can change its time to Qatar time for a month because they do like... I'll be on Qatar time. time. I will be, but no one else around me will be. It'll be an interesting month. Yeah, exactly. Desert time from one desert to another. Very good stuff. All right, gents. I think we have done the World Cup justice there to a certain extent. We shall park this podcast here for now. And as you say, as we say, we're going to do an episode on the Women's World Cup uh, coming up on the feed at some point as well. But for now, Taylor Rockwell, thank you so much for your time. Right back at you, my friend. Graham Rutherford. Thanks, bud. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. And Joe Lowry, keep on trucking. Oh, you too, Ryan. <laughs> Thank you very much, listener. We'll be back on your feed soon, but for now, bye-bye.